When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, I'll be speaking with Adam Sunberg, Associate Professor of History at Creighton University. We'll be talking about his new book, Natural Disasters at the Closing of the Dutch Golden Age, Flood, Worms, and Cattle Plagues, published by Cambridge University Press. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Douglas. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, could you begin our conversation by telling us a little bit about your background? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, you already introduced where I work. I'm an associate professor of history uh, and also digital humanities at Creighton University, and that's in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm an environmental historian, and my work focuses primarily on the intersection between disaster studies and environmental history, and I'm a specialist in the early modern history of the Netherlands, so the Dutch Republic. And, you know, not coincidentally, that's what this book is about. This is my first book, um, and it's an outgrowth of doctoral work I did at the University of Kansas, uh, where I worked under Greg Cushman. Um, Beyond that, uh, in terms of my background, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that there were all sorts of, you know, people that were absolutely instrumental in um, helping this book come to fruition, of course, Greg, and also Petra Van Damme at the Free University of Amsterdam, a part of the reason that this book uh, came into existence and the dissertation as well is because I had the opportunity to study with the Fulbright in the Netherlands uh, back in 2011. Um, and so I had just ample opportunity, mostly through Petra, to uh, to do the, the foundational research uh, for this for this work. And of course, after the dissertation, I've substantially revised it as with these kinds of books. Um, but yeah, that's in essence how I got to where I am today with this book. Yeah. Uh, how did you how did you come to this topic? Uh, well, like I said, the book is now growth from the dissertation. And pretty early on, I received a small seed grant through this um, climate change research group as a part of at the University of Kansas um, to do some uh, archival, initial archival research in the Netherlands. I had already known when I came to KU that I was interested in Dutch environmental history, though at the time I was actually interested in a very different kind of environmental history. I had just read this fantastic book by Bo Paulson on the environmental history of the Dutch herring fishery, which was you know, an incredibly important part of the 17th century economy. Uh, and I had some questions that I thought I might explore. Uh, when I got to the Netherlands, I very quickly realized that um, 
some of the sources, uh, some of the art, you know, archival sources that I would probably need to answer those questions either weren't available or I just wasn't prepared to um, to tackle them. And so I was, in essence, kind of fishing around uh, for another, yeah, pun intended, for a, another project. I was already somewhat interested in, I guess what we can call disaster history, though I you know, wasn't really steeped in what all that meant. Um, and sort of by happenstance, I was in Kronian, you know, where you work. I was at the provincial archives there, and I was, you know, interested in disasters to a certain extent. And I was looking around, um, I wouldn't say aimlessly. I had a sense that I was primarily interested in coastal floods at that point. And I just kept, I just came across this really spectacular source, a journal from this provincial bureaucrat. His name was Thomas von Seyrat. And I didn't really realize how unique this document was at the time in retrospect. I mean, it was just, um, I mean, finding something like this is incredibly rare. It's uh, told in the first person. It's, you know, hundreds of pages of um, very well written, uh, like a narrative of what happened during this horrific flood. It was called the Christmas flood of 1717. But it was, like I said, first person and very affecting. Like it revealed this very deeply personal perspective on what happened during the flood, but importantly, also the period of dike reconstruction that followed. It included all these hand-drawn diagrams showing what dikes used to look like and how he planned to improve them and ultimately how they were improved. It uh, included all sorts of technical detail about how dikes were built, you know, before and after. And this is, I mean, I knew virtually nothing at this point about dike construction. So, of course, this was wonderful. It also, uh, and this is, was a focus in the book and also in um, a couple articles I've written about the Christmas flood since, it provided his perspective on this political tension that emerged around the issue of dike financing for reconstruction following um, the Christmas flood of 1717. And in particular, this conflict that emerged between the city of Groningen and sort of the immediate countryside surrounding it, which is called the Omelonden. It included all sorts of challenges he faced, including the issue of sort of uh, forcing laborers who didn't want to to actually work on this dike, which uh, sparked, kind of catalyzed this very short-lived farmer insurrection. Um, but I mean, in, in the, maybe the most important thing was that it was an introduction uh, for me to the worldview of an early modern technocrat. We often think about like technocrats, technocracies, this very sort of modern phenomenon, but here we have an early modern version of this. And I realized quite quickly, and this is what that first article is written about, that disasters don't just sort of showcase worldviews of people like von Seyrat, um, but that their worldviews actually mediated their response to disasters, including the Christmas flood, but also other disasters as well as I would come to realize. And this ultimately became the most important finding that perception governs response, right? And so I wrote this journal article and I you know, fundamentally reoriented uh, my uh, dissertation research around disasters. And this is where I uh, sort of the beginning and how I began to delve into this as a book length project. Wow, sounds like a, a great source. Um, so what exactly is natural disaster history? I feel like it's kind of uh, more of a new approach um, that scholars are taking? Uh, well, you'd be right. Um, sort of. 
right? So, I mean, interest in natural disasters is, of course, quite old. You know, disasters are featured in, like, historical accounts all the way back to antiquity. And, you know, they, off, they often feature, yeah, uh, yeah. They, they featured, like, periodically in historical accounts uh, all the way through the medieval period in Europe, through the early modern period, of course, today. And, yeah, a book like mine would not have been possible without people's interest in natural disasters. They're very willing to write about. They're very interested in. They are, after all, you know, very dramatic events. So you see them in historical sources like city histories or also flood chronicles, this genre that emerges in the 17th century in the Netherlands. Um, but, you know, the, the point that you're making that... Uh, you know, disaster history is relatively new is also correct because most of the time, really up until essentially the Cold War, disasters weren't really the subject of historical analysis, at least not in the way that we think of them today. They were like treated as almost like a historical accident, like literally in the early modern period as an act of God, but also in the modern period, you know, act of God just refers to something that, you know, is unexpected, you know, couldn't be controlled. Uh, couldn't be predicted. Um, and disasters could sometimes catalyze change, but they weren't necessarily like interesting or really worthy objects of historical examination in their own right. And this changes in the post-war period, right? And especially in the context of the Cold War, um, especially in the United States, where like the federal government is actually funding some of the earliest disaster research institutions. So you're right, right? Disaster history is a very recent phenomenon. But even then, like in the you know 60s, 50s and 60s, um, and to a certain extent, even to today, it was still largely focused on the impacts, like the impacts of natural disasters, right? They wanted to, these disaster researchers wanted to model what a, like a low frequency, high impact event, right? Like a nuclear attack might do to an American city. There's, it's impossible to, and you wouldn't want to do a sort of natural experiment on that. So what's the closest analog? An earthquake, right? Or a hurricane, something that destroys infrastructure, something that disrupts you know, this social fabric of a society, right? The best we could, they could come up with was a natural disaster. Um, environmental history actually joins this conversation quite quickly after sort of inception in the 60s and especially in the 70s. Some of the like earliest canonical, and I'm saying this is you know, from an American perspective, uh, environmental histories very much dealt with disasters as central elements that needed to be historicized, right? So, Alfred Crosby's famous Columbian Exchange is very much about uh, pandemics. Don Worcester's Dust Bowl is, you know, I don't know that he would characterize what he did as a disaster history. I mean, it's very much an environmental history, but these are still notable examples of environmental historians joining this conversation. And, and in Europe, you also see the emergence of disaster studies or historical disaster studies, uh, but it's just based in a different historical tradition, much like environmental history in general is based on a different historical tradition, often um, drawing insights from the French school, the Annalise, right? You have French historians like Manuel Leroy Ledurie, um, sort of pioneering historical climatology on the continent. Also in England, you have people like Hubert Lamb, who's doing something similar. I shouldn't say similar, but he's also contributing to historical climatology and its intersection with disasters. But it's even more recent than that, right? Because things don't really take off until the 80s and especially the 90s, when a lot of the most consequential changes in what we can call today less, I guess, disaster history than historical disaster studies 
really take off, right? So it's not in history, but actually the social sciences, geography, you know, sociology, anthropology, they're the ones that really begin to question fundamental assumptions we have about disaster dynamics, not just in the current period, but also historically. So in a broad sense, they encourage us to think about the social constructedness of disasters, right? So disasters aren't just you know, or maybe necessarily or exclusively events, sort of isolated in time and space, they're just, they're processes that play out over time, right? They emerge out of, of course, natural hazards, like, you know, a storm surge or high water in rivers or earthquakes, right? But also um, they emerge when those hazards affect socially vulnerable populations, whether vulnerable due to, you know, poverty or some other form of marginalization. Um, And, those vulnerabilities are historically constructed, right? They play out over, in some cases, very long periods of time, decades, uh, years, sometimes longer, right? And they, of course, continue long after the hazards abate as well. So this was the central insight or one of the central insights that these, this social scientific study of disasters presented this emerging field in the 80s and 90s. And uh, like the historical study of disasters has really expanded and diversified recently too like i'd be remiss if i didn't note that it's not like changes ended in the 80s and 90s it's only become more and more um broad and diverse and i mean it's very interdisciplinary right so my book i mean it couldn't have happened it's deeply indebted to scholarship in history right especially environmental and in europe like social economic history especially in the netherlands and belgium um, but also to historical disaster studies conducted by sociologists, anthropologists, historians of climate society, art history, folk. I mean, the list just goes on and on. So I actually don't think about it really as disaster history. I think of it rather as historical disaster studies, which I think, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm just thinking too, <laughs> I'm not thinking too much about this, but um, I think it accurately, more accurately reflects just the interdisciplinary nature of, uh, of this type of study. Um, so the book, uh, is historical. I mean, what I, what I frame as historical disaster study. Uh, and it, I think of it that way because it does really two things, right? So, uh, and both of these things are what, um, disaster studies have sort of pioneered since the eighties and nineties. First, it examines like the origins and also the outcomes, including responses to natural disasters. So like disasters are the subject. And for this reason, like each chapter deals with a disaster, right? Usually in, in the sort of a broader constellation of social, economic, maybe other natural uh, disasters. So a constellation of crises. Um, but it also does something else, right? It examines the way disasters reflect or transform society. So not the disasters, but sort of historical change is the subject. And this is actually usually what I think about when I think about disaster history. And in my case, uh, that sort of long-term historical change was decline or the perception of decline, if I want to be like, if I'm, uh, you have to be most accurate. So this book, I think, and this is what I'm trying to do, tries to bridge disaster studies uh, with environmental history to sort of derive insights from both. I mean, there's obvious interlap and also to sort of interrogate the interaction um, between environment and society in the process. 
Yeah, I was really, uh, I thought really effective. And uh, I think yeah, disaster studies definitely sounds like a, a better in inter, broader interdisciplinary term to use for all the, all the scholarship that you have to draw on to examine something like this. Yeah. Um, so the book begins with the, the ramp yard. And I was wondering if you could, you know, talk about what this is and why it's important it's in the late 17th century and what it represents for the Dutch Republic. Uh, sure. Yeah. The, I mean, the Rampiar is a, I mean, it's the Dutch term for the literally translated disaster year uh, of 1672. And this is about as close as the Dutch Republic would come to, you know, outright political social collapse uh, in the 17th century. So in this year, the Dutch Republic was attacked by France and England and also a couple of German allies. And it, it began, uh, it sort of caught the regents uh, who governed the Dutch Republic and especially Holland a bit unawares. Um, and it began like really dramatically bad for the Republic. The Bishop of Munster was one of those allies. He invaded uh, in the north and occupied large areas of Groningen. He laid siege actually to the city of Groningen. Meanwhile, like uh, France invaded and occupied much of the south. Uh, conquering uh, and occupying huge regions, uh, including some pretty large cities, the, the city of Utrecht, for instance. Um, Holland, uh, you know, the regions there, they tried to uh, slow the invasion by implementing what, um, what's called the water line, uh, like intentionally inundating uh, low-lying areas to try to slow or prevent yeah, enemy incursion. Uh, but in the initial months, like, this was a pretty dry year, uh, and so drought limited its effectiveness. And if you know people are interested in this, like I can't recommend enough this book by uh, Dagmar de Groot, who uh, wrote the the Frigid Golden Age, and he really uh, tackles this head on. It's really a great book. But in in any case, like by mid year or so, uh, I mean the Republic was facing an existential crisis. So. It's called the disaster year in part because it began disastrously from a military perspective, but it was also disastrous because of the reaction of the Dutch population, which really just compounded um, these military impacts because in a lot of the cities where uh, the Dutch retained control, citizens rioted. They ultimately deposed and killed Holland's chief statesman and also his brother. And actually, if you go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, you know, this fantastic art museum, there's this really horrific, gory painting sort of commemorating this execution. Um, and it, it wasn't just uh, like unrest, like social unrest. There were obvious economic impacts. The invasion uh, began quite quickly. And they're incredibly dramatic, right? The stock market crashes, you know, shares in these overseas trading companies, the West Indian Company, the Dutch East India Company, they took serious hits. Um, another sort of pillar of, you know, the maritime economy of the Netherlands, the herring fishery, but also overseas trade, they were disrupted due to uh, fear of naval attacks. Um, public building more or less stopped. The art market, the famous, you know, quote unquote, golden age art market, it collapses and to a certain extent never really recovers. And like unquestionably, the Rampiar, the disaster year, was experienced worse, like uh, like hardest in rural regions, townsfolk, rural populations that were in the occupied territories. 
because I mean, they're, you know, experiencing all the economic and I mean, this is the early modern period. So like military occupation is pretty brutal. Uh, but they're also, uh, ultimately the water line is, uh, effectively like, timely rains occur. They're able to flood inundated territories and these places become, uh, they become sacrifice zones. Um, and so the, the rural regions of Republic are also, and maybe especially feeling the impacts of this disaster year. Uh, and then like on top of this, so that's bad enough, but really like where are natural disasters in this store? Sure. It's a disaster, but you know, where's. Where's uh, where environmental hazards? So on top of this, uh, the Republic experiences a number of natural disasters. So there's massive sort of widespread flooding, mostly centered on northern Holland in 1675, right? So a few years later. There's also in 1674 this very famous windstorm that's been sort of uh, retrospectively determined to be a derecho, so a straight line windstorm. And this is the storm that famously topples part of the, the Domkirk, the sort of cathedral in the middle of Utrecht. If you go there today, actually, like the, the iconic tower is like completely uh, clad in scaffolding. I think people call it the refrigerator now. because the way. It, but on the outside of it, it's sort of like historicized. It gives a historical chronology of all the things, all the ways that this um, church has been modified in the past, and of course, this 1674 moment was important. It was also a disaster, right? And so the way I interpret this, and it wasn't just me, it wasn't just one source, a number of different sources characterized that 1672 certainly was a disaster, right? Uh, but it was broader than that. It was it's almost a disaster period and inaugurated this years-long set of interlocking, you know, interdependent crises that were you know, mutually compounding the impacts of one. It was sort of like a positive feedback. And all of this uh, is thought of as a disaster, right? So why was the disaster your disasters? I guess like politically, you know, economically, but also in the context of, uh, of environmental assaults from their perspective, right? Yeah, it certainly sounds like uh, disasters all around. Um so in the early 18th century, we, the Dutch start experiencing um, a cattle plague. So we have the Rampiar, we're having storms, flooding, and now we have a cattle plague. Uh, what was the, the cattle plague and how did the Dutch respond to this? Uh, well, yeah, they, they experienced their first cattle plague outbreak in the early 18th century. There are actually three, right? I... I investigate two of them. The first one uh, lasts between like roughly 1713 and then sort of peters out by 1720. And then the second one uh, begins in 1744, rather. And I mean, it lasts in essence two decades. And in both cases, like the worst impacts were in the very first years. Uh, but I treat uh, both of them in a sort of uh, from a long-term perspective. Uh, Rinderpest or cattle plague, right? Um, the cattle plague itself is probably renderpest, a virus, um, morbillo virus. It's related to measles. Um, and it's a pretty famous disease, right? Um, it's one of only two diseases ever to have been intentionally eradicated by people. Obviously, the other one is smallpox. Um, but uh, I'm glad that you asked about cattle plague and not renderpest because uh, I use 
cattle plague specifically because retrospective diagnosis of these kinds of well any like historical uh disease especially animal diseases is really quite difficult um because render pest was really just one of several livestock diseases that may have contributed to this pandemic um we're beholden to our historical sources that are describing uh what the conditions look like um what the symptoms were and symptoms varied right they varied over time and they varied based on who is describing the level of detail etc and there's any number of other <laughs> cattle diseases that may have also contributed to uh to these cattle plagues to these disasters bovine pleuronemonia or anthrax just a number a host of other diseases which may have actually all been happening at the same we just we just don't really know but uh, high mortality and really the behavior of the pandemic or actually it's a panzoatic right because it's, it's an animal disease uh certainly conform to what we might expect of render pest right we can't be certain uh and this is the reason i refer to it as cattle plague in the book um, that said, uh, the disease or diseases, it was certainly deadly, right? It had exceptionally high mortality, which once again, conforms to understanding of Rinderpest. Rinderpest infection rates can be like as high as 100% and mortality can be as high as 90%. It like ranges from roughly 60 to 90%. So this is really, really deadly. Uh, and... Part of what I found fascinating about the outbreak of this disease uh, is how it arrived in the Netherlands. So this is an environmental history of these disasters. It's not just a you know, historical disaster study. And so I wanted to unpack with each of these disasters the long-term processes of environmental and social change that led to, led to in this case, the outbreak or the spread of this panzoatic. And in general, with animal panzo with panzootics, they follow, they tend to follow patterns of trade and warfare, right? The movement of people necessitates the movement of animals as well. So, uh, and that actually may have responded in turn to some climatic variables. And there's been some really interesting work. I discussed some of it in the book. And Sam White, this historical climatologist of Ohio State, has um, really done some really some fascinating work on even these European cattle plagues. Um, but in any case, these were likely causal elements in play in the second decade of the 18th century when the pandemic began. It actually begins a few years earlier than when it arrives in the Netherlands. Um, it probably wasn't a coincidence that there was an incredibly brutal winter in 1708, 1709, it affected much of the continent. Uh, and these climatic conditions likely contributed to the beginning of the plague and maybe impacted the susceptibility, um, not this particular winter, but for instance, um, if there are sort of wet, cool springs, this depresses grass growth, delays hay harvests, um, prevents farmers from uh, releasing their cattle from the stalls where they overwintered into the path, all this sort of delays things and also uh, undermines you know, the immune systems of these animals, which may have contributed to uh, the virulence, especially in the early years of these pandemics. And this is also um, coincides, this, this pandemic, or it's panzoatic, with the War of the Spanish Succession, right? That lasts from 1701 to 1714, in a sense. Uh, and so you have, during this period, these large armies moving across Europe, and they're bringing herds of cattle uh, to feed these armies, or they're tapping uh, livestock wherever they arrive, which then need to be replenished. So there's 
animal movement. It's not just human movement. So trade warfare, right? Um, the plague really begins in central Eastern Europe. It spreads to the Balkans, Italy, Southern Europe, and there's been some great work done on that. But it also follows a different path up to the Baltic uh, before being transported to the North Sea. And actually, this was my, fr- I had no idea that there was an international oxen trade before I started the project, right? And when you think about this in like the Wild West, these cattle drives, I mean, there was a cattle drive that connected Denmark or Danish pastures, suppliers where these oxen were reared to Dutch pastures where they would then be fattened, right? And then sold often for meat to feed urban, you know, Dutch populations. And these um, cattle drives, and they're also shipped across the North Sea. I mean, they, they shipped thousands of these cattle uh, every year. And they often ended up like historically in the town of Horn, uh, which had a big cattle market, but especially Amsterdam by the early 18th century. So when the Panzoatic arrives in the Dutch Republic, it's in 1713. Uh, I mean, the weather, no doubt, played a role in the immediate spread because it was a cool, wet summer. Um, that's pretty typical, actually, of conditions during this this phase of the Little Ice Age. Uh, but it also, up, you know, appeared in Amsterdam, right, implicating this oxen trade. Uh, so that's what the plague is. Uh, and the chapter also tackles, um, how the Dutch responded to it. And I argue they responded to the cattle plague in a number of really pretty creative ways. Um, but since my book is also interested in what governs response, right? So how perception governs, governs response, um, I focus in, partic- in particular on how people framed causation of this panzoatic and how that these causal stories we call them influenced response. And I tackle this really from like three sort of broad, sort of general regimes of response. There's a providentialist causal story, there's an environmentalist causal story, and then there's a contagionist causal story. Uh, and so. Providentialism, I guess for those who aren't familiar with the concept of divine providence, it's it refers to the sort of direct relationship God had in steering what the Dutch call the sort of creation, right? So early modern observers, you know, a whole host of people looked to nature for evidence of divine will, uh, divine intentionality, right? So like on the one hand, if you have like a great harvest or something goes really well, um, this indicates that God's generosity, right? Divine favor, maybe. But when there's something that happens uh, that's problematic, including a disaster, this indicates God's displeasure, right? Usually with human sin. So there's this direct sin punishment dynamic that we see all throughout the 18th century. It's not just um, it's not just here. So Dutch sin brings cattle plague to their shores. So what's the logical thing to do if a pandemic is caused by sin? Uh, well, if you're Catholic, I guess you might turn to the you know, Catholic rituals, pilgrimages to holy places and processions. And uh, there's this German historian named Dominic Kuniga who wrote this fantastic book on a later cattle plague and um, references some of the uh, the Catholic responses. Uh, but if you're in this sort of, in some of the small Catholic communities in Holland, for instance, this is important too, but um, by and large we get the perspective of the majority, like reformed Calvinists, uh, who employed a different ritual in keeping 
like with their beliefs. And they call these thanks, fasting and prayer days, which were in essence state sanctioned public penance. Um, and these were perceived to have therapeutic effects, right? But they also served as prophylaxes that would like stem the risk of future infection. So um, these are important from a like a moral perspective, but from a social perspective, I argue they were also useful coping strategies because these plagues, the reason why there are so many different, you could say competing causal stories is because they were not just deadly, right? And destabilizing events, they were also pretty confusing. Uh, and providential interpretations applied some sense of order and control. And there are other social benefits I sort of tackle in the book as well. Providence, though, was not the only causal story uh, because there were also environmentalists. You could call these like material causal stories um, or even like medical causal stories. Uh, and there were a number of ways you could tackle these panzoatics uh in this material sense so like farmers and state state officials they want to control the spread of disease in the physical realm uh they would if you're environmentalist and what i mean by this is this is related to the the miasma theory this notion that disease emerges from a polluted environment so if you hear that interpretation you focus on like cleansing disease spaces cleaning cattle stalls, for instance, you know, mucking them out or maybe like burning gunpowder in them or draining wetlands, right? Because these were thought to, in some cases, foster miasmas. And if cattle die, you don't dump them in like, you know, the closest canal because that would pollute that body of water. I mean, this would spread the disease. But if you adhere to this contagionous model, and contagionous is probably exactly what you think it is, right? Your response would be different, right? You might institute quarantines, um, or the state, and this is what they often did, would uh, impose import and export restrictions on cattle. Because remember, a lot of these this, this cattle is coming from uh, from outside the republic. But I mean, there's a lot of cattle movement even within the republic, and so you might also create like a cattle certification system. And this, I mean, makes a lot of sense to us, I think, today because we have if you do any international traveling, especially early on, sort of certification systems for you know health or in our case, vaccination, right? So that existed in the early modern period as well. It would indicate that a cattle it couldn't move or couldn't be purchased from a distant location unless that location was certified to be free of disease. So these were some of the responses that were available to people. Uh, and they weren't mutually exclusive. I, I said competing, but really I should sort of take a step back because all these, I mean, what I ultimately argue the, the response was, was universalist. They didn't choose because um, provinces would sometimes enact quarantines. Many enacted certification systems and most uh, imposed these important export restrictions. But that was just the state things that like the state could do. And this was the Dutch Republic was very decentralized. Most governance happened at the provincial level uh, and also in like local levels, regional levels, sometimes at the level of cities. It wasn't like a national response to this. Uh, and the state, especially provinces, were the ones that would be able to do that. But that didn't preclude what you know localities or even on the level of an individual farm, like a farmer might do, who could you know muck out their stalls, they could clean or aerate them, or you know drain fields, um, or use folk remedies. Right? These were also uh, very popular. It was really this all of the above strategy, um, and I wanted to include 
all of these, and I really want to include cattle plague specifically as one of the first, really the first real case study I, I delve into in the book, because I think it, uh, I mean, exemplified a lot of what I wanted to do in future chapters too. First, I mean, this was an incredibly, very like deadly and costly uh, disaster. It was easily among the most discussed disasters of the early 18th century. It made um, a pretty profound impression on people, in other words, and they would reference it consistently throughout the remainder of the century. And this is something that I, uh, I really, um, I really discovered in the context of uh, like the concluding the dissertation. And this is really the basis upon which this book is built because these disasters needed to be connected, and they were indeed connected. At least the perception of them was that they were connected in the context of this evolving idea of Dutch decline. So that's, they're deadly, costly, connected, right? Um, There are also aspects of the response during this episodic that uh, would be repeated when cattle plague would return in the 1740s. So there's, there was a potential to do some comparison. Um, And then I think Dutch response to cattle plague, uh, and this is where I have a sort of historiographic intervention, Dutch response has been pretty uh, consistently criticized. And I should note that like my thinking about this was very much influenced by a colleague of mine uh, in Belgium. His focus was on like the, a third, the third outbreak of uh, cattle plague and it affected the Austrian Netherlands. Um, but we co-wrote an author, uh, we co-wrote um, an article together that sort of tackled this, well, we thought of as a sort of historiograph- historiographical fallacy. And largely, like the idea is that the Dutch Republic was a state that because it was so decentralized, it couldn't effectively deal with the cattle plague. And the reason is because other states that were more centralized tended to privilege yet another um, state-driven response, and that is preventative slaughter. So... That is, is the state would slaughter any animal known or even suspected to potentially harbor diseases. And I mean, this policy to a certain extent still exists today. It's in the playbook for modern epizootics, but it was pioneered in Italy during this cattle plague by like the Pope's personal physician. His name was Lenchisi, sometimes called the Lenchisi method, or it's called sometimes called stamping out. And it was pretty effective, especially in like strong centralized states like England. Uh, that said, it was incredibly expensive, and farmers don't today and didn't then uh, really appreciate um, animals, any animals, but especially just animals that were suspected to harbor disease being proactively, preemptively culled. Um, so the Dutch didn't really, well, they didn't adopt it, and they barely considered it, right? And because of that, like many historians have sort of retrospectively argued that, I mean, this is that the decentralized nature of the Republic made it particularly susceptible to, or weak, it's, it was a weakness, right? They couldn't deal with the plague for this reason. So both um, Philip and I, and I do in this book too, critique this decision. Um, and the reason I argue that the Dutch ultimately chose not to wasn't um, because they had, you know, a better set of ideas. I mean, they, they weren't able to solve cattle plague. It did last, in this case, for seven years. But there were very good reasons. I agree it was, in essence, 
kind of a logical choice because on the one hand, of course, it was expensive. A lot of things are expensive, though, but there were other reasons why they chose not to, because in particular, I mean, the Dutch Republic wasn't England. It's not uh, an island. Success wasn't a sure thing. The Netherlands had very porous borders and this cattle economy that was a central pillar of um, agricultural society in, in the Dutch Republic was very much premised on cattle movement. So you'd have to fundamentally change just about everything about the cattle economy because it required restocking from foreign herds. Or at the very least, even if you could shift production away from like Denmark, for instance, uh, and shift some of that focus of cattle rearing to you know more rural regions in the East, which to a certain extent they did, that still required movement, right? Um, but really, I argue like, the most important is re- reason is because it presumed the disease was spread exclusively via contagion, right? It, it presumed that the only causal story, the most important causal story in play was contagionism. And this, as I pointed out earlier, is just not the case. Um, and I guess there's like one more thing that I should note as it relates to how cattle plague was important in the context of not just this specific case study, but the framework for the entire book. Because as I mentioned earlier, I'm not just unpacking like what happened during specific disasters, but I also want to use these disasters to understand this broader historical phenomenon that is decline or this emerging, evolving declensionist discourse is how I refer to it. At this point in the story, decline uh, is still pretty remote. Like it's still largely people who are convinced of it, or it's still largely confined to a pretty small group of often ministers, usually ministers associated with, you know, pietism, uh, the further reforma- reformation. I mean, they are the ones who are promoting this notion that the cattle plague was more than just, you know, a sin punishment interaction in a limited sense, but indicated that the Republic was on this very negative trajectory. Um, like this has happened to a certain extent in 1672, part of the reason I focus on it or I introduced the book in this way. Um, but in the cattle plague of, you know, 1713 to 1720, they're implicating in part because, well, in part they're linking it back to 1672. They're saying this trajectory never ended. And there have also been all these like harsh winters, 0809, right? Harvest failures, uh, other floods, coastal uh, ghost floods in particular, and like also plagues of mice. The war of succession was also a part of the story because, I mean, this was the, the, the war where the Dutch Republic built up the largest army and they paid for it almost exclusively with, with loans, right? So they, these provinces had enormous public debts. There was kind of a debt crisis at the end of this. There was an agricultural recession that was in full swing at this point. So we have, in other words, like another disaster period, right? All these crises are mutually reinforcing each other uh, in a social and economic sense. But at this point, relatively few people are really linking this to decline. It's really just this small group of moralizers. Uh, And yet uh, these anxieties would grow progressively worse as we get through uh, in the coming decades. Right. So as, you know, in the midst of all these things that are happening that you just talked about, including the cattle plague. Uh, The north of the Netherlands is inundated with the Christmas Day flood in 1717. So why is this important? You talked about it a bit uh, with the source you found, but uh, could you go more into a bit about why this flood and its response was, uh, you know, a focus of of this chapter and why you found it important for your book? Sure. Um, 
Well, the flood's, I guess, important really for two big reasons. One's because they were incredibly deadly. Uh, I mean, this is kind of obvious, but like the scale of devastation with this flood is just uh, remarkable, even when compared to other North Sea floods. So estimates vary, um, but people argue that, you know, something around 13,000 people died uh, during the Christmas flood. And that actually doesn't count the number of people who were victimized in other ways. Uh, I mean, the this disaster, especially in some of the German regions, I mean, had an incredibly long life. Um, and just to put it in perspective, it's really rare for, especially a river flood, but even like uh, a coastal flood to kill a thousand people. And this is something that um, some of the social economic historians like Tim Soons and Boss Babel have argued. And that context is really extraordinary. Um, and like one of uh, Tim Soons has actually recently, and I think pretty convincingly argued that the Christmas was probably the deadliest flood in North Sea history. And I mean, you're in Cronian. Uh, I'm actually curious. When I first started researching this, there was very, very little that was written about it. There was like a really good um, master's thesis on the Christmas flood and rebuilding efforts. But beyond that, like people just weren't aware of it. Um, but then things sort of seemed to change and commemorations around 2017, there was like all sorts of commemorative activities like public art. There was like a Christmas flood beer. There was a movie. Out. I mean, uh, had you ever heard of this? Ah, so you had heard of it before. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm glad we do it. Well, I guess I'm, um, yeah, so it's important for that, I think, pretty obvious reason. If this flood is that deadly, of course, it's going to be meaningful. Whether it, enact, it catalyzes meaningful changes is another thing. In fact, at least in the Netherlands, um, and really specifically Kronian, it destroyed a huge amount of dike infrastructure, like entire sections of these large coastal dikes were just completely washed away. And many more were damaged beyond repair. So, I mean, this is obviously worse, uh, worse for people who live literally on the dike or, you know, immediately behind them or immediately protected. And these would be the people who would be most at risk. They are ultimately the people who uh, died during the flood. Uh, and so this latter bit has, um, of course, spent quite a bit of time explaining why this disaster happened when it did uh, and why it did. And if you're curious, I can, I can unpack that a bit, but I spent a lot of the chapter also explaining um, the response to it. So um, why is it important uh, in terms of its response? Well, I think it's important for a few reasons. Once again, I tackle it from like a providential perspective. This causal story is once again important, remain important, like I said, throughout the 18th century. But in, in a lot of ways, it's pretty similar to what we see during the cattle plague, for instance. Also, to a certain extent, in the in the Rampar, you still have some of the same civic rituals being employed, some of even the same language. Um, but what I thought was really interesting about the Christmas flood was the way it was different, right? Because, you know, flood is not cattle plague and no disaster is as like culturally resonant as flooding in the Dutch Republic. I mean, the Netherlands is today a very famously low-lying country, right? You fly into Schiphol, you're several meters below sea level. Like, what is it? Like a third of the, of the country is below sea level. Um, 
Yeah, maybe getting that wrong. But I mean, it was low lying then. It's even more so today because of subsidence and a number of other factors. But um, yeah, I mean, the Dutch were well regarded. You can say, you know, uh, famous throughout Europe for being for building dikes, for draining and reclaiming the landscape. They've been doing this for like a thousand years. At that point, like seven hundred years. So it was water control of water was very much a part of Dutch culture and identity, especially in these Western maritime provinces. And by extension, right, flooding would be culturally resonant as well. So if, and to bring this back to providentialism, if building dikes, right, which represent this, the Dutch capacity to master water, if that's an expression of their culture, it's also an expression of their chosen status by God. And many people would refer to this as sort of um, a second Israel, right? Building and maintaining them becomes not just like technical act in this context, it's actually a moral act. And flooding, especially on this scale, 94% uh, of like casualties occur in Groningen. There's very good reasons for that, which I can once again unpack if you're curious. But um, the providential response as a result um, is intense. This is one of the reasons it was different from the cattle plague. Um, but also, these this flood was huge. It was international, but in the Dutch context, it was specific to Groningen. It was localized, right? So why did people just think of this as a, a Groningen problem? Providential interpretations, uh, you know, sermons, other moralizing documents, right? They all argued that sure it happened in Groningen, but the stakes were larger. Groningen suffered the punishment but the Dutch were implicated for the sin. So there's this attempt to scale up the providential interpretation of this disaster to the Republic at large. And this wasn't to like appeal for like external support from other provinces. It wasn't to appeal to, I don't know, the Estates General, the sort of central governing. I mean, that wasn't really the point of this. The point was to integrate this provincial disaster into this national well, national, national is sort of an anachronism at this point in time, but like a republic-wide story of ongoing and worsening decline. Um, so that's providence, but there's also, of course, less esoteric responses. Um, I mentioned in the sort of like when I found this journal that there was this period of uh, intense conflict between the city of Kronian and the countryside, Omelanden, that there was this like short-lived farmer insurrection. And all these things are... Uh, so I, I explore them in, in the article as well. Um, they are eventually resolved uh, in favor of Stadkroni in part because just so much of the entrenched political power is with the city at the expense, especially of some of these rural landholders who are uh, tasked with building and maintaining dikes. This farmer insurrection happens because um, one of the ways that they rebuild it is they don't just ask people who immediately butt the dike. This is the sort of tradition uh, of how dikes are built and maintained. They ask people who like lived further inland, sort of ad hoc communalization, to use a term from Emilia uh, Fontenot. She, or this this idea that like people who live further inland who hadn't in the past been responsible for dike repair now had to like contribute their labor. Like this is the the catalyst for this farmer insurrection. Anyway, so all these things are happening. It's delaying the rebuilding of dikes. Thomas von Seyrat is this provincial bureaucrat who's like tasked with overseeing it. So it's all giving him a headache. They do eventually uh, 
rebuild the dikes, um, and they're actually able to avert the worst impacts of the next coastal flood disaster, which does create a disaster in Germany, but doesn't in Groningen. This happens in 1720. And so, like the, the conclusion of this journal is Thomas von Seyrat sort of you know, sitting back and thinking to himself, yeah, I mean, I saved Groningen, essentially. Um, so the way that he's like framing himself as the hero of the story is pretty obvious. Um, so that's in essence how uh, uh, how the response worked, and like the one of the things that I I really focus on at the very end, and it be, it's it's something I focus I guess I guess you could say throughout, but I like finish with this is uh, what was most striking about this whole period was uh, and that transcended these sort of mundane sort of secular responses and also providential responses was the way everybody was so interested uh, and I mean, from a modern perspective, like overly interested, overly engaged with the past, right? You might today think of this as a really backward facing or looking approach to disaster response because I mean, I was approaching this in a, like a modern mindset. So when disasters happen to us today, like oftentimes media reportage, um, public interest is on the future. Like how do we adapt, you know, prevent something like this from ever happening. Innovation is often critical, especially technical innovation. Politicians like promise rebuilding, right? So the focus is often on future risk. It's not like we never focus on the past. Of course we do, but uh, in 1717, it was the focus, right? And the reason for this, I argue, is because flooding in the past had deep instructive potential for Dutch morality, which is why Providence was a causal story. There were all sorts of like traditions in dike building and maintenance that needed to be upheld. There were customs associated with financial obligations for like land tenancy. These had implications for dike maintenance and rebuilding. There were legal precedents, right? But none of this was clear cut. And so people spent a ton of time interpreting the past, molding it to suit their needs, right? And even arguments that were absolutely about dike improvement, innovation, right? You can think of it as a sort of an early modern technocratic rhetoric of innovation, building better than ever before, right? Even this was missed in the past because... I mean, the language of innovation is self-evidently forward-looking, but it can only seem that way when it's constructed against an inferior past. So you have in like the journal, these like the, the dike schematics prior to 1717 and superimposed on top of them is the newer ones, uh, the improvements. This is in a way uh, an attempt to capture the past. So my like big takeaway from Dutch response to the Christmas flood, I guess in a nutshell, as you could say, or maybe like George Orwell would say, like controlling the past is the key to controlling the future, right? Uh, I mean, you're not terribly unique, but it's nevertheless something that you don't come across all that much in disaster studies. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, those sketches are in the book and they're really, I've, I spend a lot of time looking at them. They're really fascinating way to think about how the design of the dikes had changed or what he was proposing was different from what was there before. So it was a uh, yeah, really good uh, inclusion in the book. Um, you next turn from, you know, the North Sea and flooding from the sea to uh, river floods in the mid-18th century. And I wonder if you could, you know, talk a little bit about these floods, but also the idea of, um, you look at them in, in the terms of like a disaster cascade and like, what does this term mean and how does the floods reflect this idea? 
Um, so disaster cascades uh, are a concept that emerged out of disaster studies, uh, the social science of disaster studies to explain complex disaster dynamics. So generally, these types of disasters feature multiple, usually contemporaneous, but sometimes sequential hazards or crises, right? And the important thing about a cascade is that all these conditions are interdependent, oftentimes mutually reinforcing. So they're creating these feedback loops that sometimes prolong, but also sometimes diminish disasters over time. And that that's actually cru- critical, right? So disaster cascades can be pretty expansive, but they can also be prolonged. So disaster isn't just an event, it's a process, right? Um, and this idea, it's, I mean, speaking of disaster studies emerging fairly recently, this is even more recent, right? And most of the people who have tackled disaster cascades um, track the path of cascades through things like like critical infrastructure or socio-technical networks or through um, dimensions of social vulnerability. And probably like the most famous example of this is the Tohoku disaster in 2011 in Japan, right? This is the earthquake and tsunami, the meltdown of the Fukushima Daiichi plant. This was connected, they're all connected and they were connected to other crises and disasters like industrial fires, etc. cetera. Um, so I, I think that the vast majority of these studies I think I'm accurate in saying this, focus on the present or at the very least the recent past. Uh, And plenty of historians actually have described complex disasters or even treated them as cascades. Um, I think Bruce Campbell's Great Transition is one great example of this, but they don't really use the disaster studies lens. Um, So with this, these series of river floods that happen in 1740 to 41, uh, I try to explicitly use a disaster cascade model to understand it. And so from this perspective, like what does this mean to interpret floods in the 1740s in this way? Um, it means you shouldn't isolate your interest or investigation to like this immediate crisis, a dike breach or a series of dike breaches either, even though these are like, um, this is critical infrastructure and they are linked. Like this is the beginning, in other words, of a traditional disaster cascade. You don't limit it to one crisis, or like one atomized event separate from everything else. The impacts could also be long lasting uh, and not just related to flooding, right? Um, and I actually, I think I apply this a little bit more broadly than even most disaster scholarship, which tends to emphasize like connectedness in a, still a relatively short period of time. The cascades that I describe I mean, they last days, weeks, sometimes years, right? Um, and I argue that flooding in this case was an example, actually, of a pre-existing cascade. It was one part of a, of a disaster cascade that had actually begun several years earlier. So that's what I'm arguing in part in this chapter. And the other thing I think cascades or applying a, a cascade uh, model to this historical disaster is it encourages you to think about like to not limit yourself to one type of hazard or crisis. So people were concerned with river flooding in 1740, pretty self-evidently. Um, but they were also still thinking about and weathering the impacts of this horrific winter in 1739 it goes to 1740, which was like on par with that horrific winter I briefly mentioned in 08, 09. I mean, this winter created severe harvest shortages 
And this increases the price of cereals in cities. It decreases income in the countryside. So there's like economic, sort of cascading economic impacts as a result of this. Mortality spikes across Western Europe throughout this period. And actually even in the Republic, which is relatively insulated um, from these types of uh, subsistence crises. So people are still, some people are still recovering from that previous cattle plague. And there's also flooding that happens in 1726. There's also a shipworm epidemic in the 1730s, this sort of bizarre disaster that, you know, if you're curious, I can talk about. Um, And there were plagues of mice. I mean, there's all sorts of economic challenges as well. So the 1740, 41 floods, I argue, are actually not the beginning of a cascade. They're kind of smack dab in the middle. And actually things would only get worse in the, like after 1744. Uh, yeah, that's how I interpret cascades. Yeah, well, why don't you talk a little bit about these uh, uh, shipworms? Um, and what I mean, they, why were they such a big threat to the to the republic? <laughs> um, so the ship, yeah, I'm glad you asked because the shipworms are one of my favorite to talk about. Um, so. I guess for listeners who aren't familiar with shipworms, and I guess these days, why would you be? They're the term refers to like a family of marine bivalves. So they're related to clams, uh, but they're called worms because of their appearance. Like they're really elongated. They look like, you know, worms. Um, they do still have shells. They're on the anterior. They're sort of small and they actually act as sort of boring tools. And that's what they do. They bore into wood. They eat, they digest it, and they ultimately live most of their lives like in this wood. But And they're called shipworms, at least in English, because uh, most people's experience with them throughout history was uh, in ships. I mean, they affected like harbor infrastructure too, but they were, uh, I mean, they, they, one of the principal hazards of life at sea, because if you're in a region that's populated by shipworms and you don't clean them out or do something to prevent them, eventually they're, they're structurally undermining your hull or your rudder, really anything that's you know, permanently submerged. Uh, and ultimately they're going to degrade it beyond use. Um, and so I talk about this not because it's necessarily affecting Dutch, you know, the Dutch merchant fleet. It's doing that too, but um, because it presents uh, a potential disaster. I mean, it's definitely like an economic and social disaster, but it's uh, presents an, actually an existential crisis for people living, especially in low-lying regions of the maritime provinces, because it's eating into the wooden infrastructure that protects the earthen bodies of dikes. And I, I unpack the, like, the environmental history of why those wooden structures exist in the first place in the book. I spent a great deal of time on it, actually. But um, short, like long story short, by the time we get to the 1730s, a lot of different, um, a lot of coastal dikes in most of the maritime provinces are protected by some form of wooden infrastructure. The form varies, but wood is uh, a common, commonly used. And so in the 1730s, all of a sudden, and it really does seem like it's all of a sudden, it seems to come out of the blue in like 1730 in Zalon, and by 1732, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, shipworms have begun eating into these wooden palisades or dike revetments, all the wooden components protecting dikes. And this is an existential crisis because if without those wooden constructions, um, the water would lap up against these uh, the earthen bodies of dikes, gradually eroding them and 
undermining their structural uh, stability. And if those dikes fail, then you have inundation. And if interior dikes fail, then you have inundation, you know, God knows where. Um, and so by the 17, 1732 or so, especially after shipworms are discovered near Amsterdam, uh, like this becomes a public crisis, almost like a shipwork panic. People all over Europe are writing back to people in Amsterdam, like, what, you know, what's going on here? There are all sorts of like rumors of, so like Amsterdam and many cities, they're built in marshy soil. So they have these wooden posts, piles that they're built on foundations. People are like, there are rumors that the shipworms are getting into them, which is of course impossible, but like all the panic was reaching kind of fever pitch. And so what do you do? I mean, you interpret this in any number of different ways. You interpret it um, providentially, and there's sort of unique providential interpretation that relates it to the early modern crime of sodomy, actually. Usually, sins are pretty vague, uh, like related to lying or blasphemy or like fornication, but like very specifically, shipworms were connected to sodomy. There's a, there's a good reason for that, which I can talk about later if you're curious. Um, but there are also technical responses to this, and... Um, ultimately what happens is by like 1730, um, Holland first, then other provinces, especially Friesland, Zeeland comes to this much later, um, fundamentally restructure their dikes. Um, they eventually remove all or most wooden implements or some of these wooden, um, uh, the wooden, the wood-based dike protection, they sort of remove that. Uh, they elongate the slopes, make the slopes much more gradual, and they line them with, with stone, right? And the benefit of this is that it prevents erosion. They're ultimately uh, more resilient structures anyway, but they also, from the perspective of people who are proposing this, solve the shipworm problem. Um, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, that was important. I mean, I argue that actually... Uh, environmental changes were just as, if not more important after all. I mean, shipworms came back in the 1770s. Um, they came back in the 19th century. They're still there today. It's just we don't, you know, <laughs> we're not as dependent upon food and water anymore. Um, yeah, there's a whole lot more I could talk about shipworms, but I don't want to derail the conversation. Yeah. No, what, the, what type of a environment do you need, does a ship, shipworm need to to survive? If it's not a threat to Amsterdam, but it's threatening the dikes. So how does this, uh, you know, what what environment does a sh- shipworm thrive in? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different types of shipworms. And they have different environmental tolerances. Probably the species um, that people are most focused on was a species called Teredo navalis, the naval shipworm. Um, there's actually some debate about, like, where it ultimately came from. Um, this marine ecologist, Jim Carlton, he argues that this is a, like a classic example of a cryptogenic species. It has no known origin. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons that I unpack why it probably came to the Netherlands. Um, I mean, I, I argue that it was probably an introduced species, though there are some people who argue genetic indigeneity. Regardless, environmental conditions were becoming more suitable for Teredo novalis, but also other species, especially species that are suitable in like temperate waters. Um, in the 1730s, in part because uh, climate was shifting. Um, we were exiting the end of like one of the great cooling phases of the Little Ice Age called the Maunder Minimum. We're in this like warm interregnum. 1730s are like one of the warmest periods. 1740s remained fairly warm. Um, and so there were also droughts associated with this period. And this is what's really critical, right? Because shipworms tend to respond and, you know, bloom 
uh, you know, rapidly expand um, and reproduce in more saline waters and warmer waters. And so drought is increasing the salinity of some of like nearshore environments, both in the Rhine-Meuse Delta. Um, the Rhine is fed partly by snowmelt, but also partly by precipitation. And the Meuse is precipitation fed, right? So if there's a drought, and there was, um, you'll see water levels decrease. This decrease in fresh water would increase like the salinity gradient near shore. And it's actually, this is happening to an even greater extent in was then called the Zoutersee. Today it's the Isselmere, right? It's that large sort of and Now it's a freshwater lake, but then it was saltwater. And I guess the other, I mean, I'm thinking of this, <laughs> it's not really obvious. Uh, most shipworms are marine, uh, and Terrain Novalis was marine. So this is like the short explanation for why, um, yeah, they're definitely not in soil uh, underneath, even sodden soil underneath the. Uh, Amsterdam, but they're not even in, they're not in freshwater. Uh, and so what they're impacting primarily are, you know, sluices, uh, you know, ships, of course, harbor works, uh, and these, uh, these dike uh, protective structures. So yeah, that's drought is really important. Of course, it's also warmer and in like the shallow, in the shallows, near shore environments, these are, um, pretty responsive to like ambient atmospheric temperature. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so this period of droughts really important. I mean, there's also this whole long history of, <laughs> you had to, there are also environmental changes that conditioned people's use of, um, of wood in front of dikes. There was a, like, th- th- that was a response actually to the exploitation of the land that used to be in front of dikes. <laughs> it's not, uh, it wasn't ideal for water to literally lap up against the earthen bodies of dikes. In any case, you wanted to have some land as a buffer outside of that. But people had been like gradually reclaiming that from the sea or exploiting it for other reasons. This had been degrading it and eroding it over time. Um, and I mean, tidal inlets between the Vaden Sea Islands were naturally shifting and there was more saltwater intrusion into the Zouder. So there are all sorts of reasons, some human cause, some... Um, you know, natural, that were making the shipworm epidemic uh, more likely by the 1730s. And I argue it's like the conjuncture of all these things together in 17 that precipitate uh, the outbreak. Right. So why don't, can you talk a little bit about why the, the providential response went immediately to the sin of sodomy? Yeah. So um, it has to do with the timing in part and also the character of responses to both. So they're both in both. So, okay, just step back a bit, I guess. Several months before shipworms were discovered in Zeeland, um, the, a, a man was arrested in Utrecht uh, and charged with what was then called the crime of sodomy, right? Uh, and based on that first arrest, um, there was you know, a trial investigation and what was gradually uncovered over the span of several months, and this would go on for years, was what they thought of as a sodomitical network. People, there was like all sorts of people engaged in similar same-sex behavior. Uh, and from you know the early modern perspective, this was like a, a crime against nature, right? And it was punishable by death. Uh, this was the this would ultimately lead to the most um, like deadly wave of 
sodomitical persecution uh, in the early modern period. And this was very uncommon, in other words. Um, and it was already seen in the 1730s as directly related, not just to, you know, uh, this was a crime against nature, but this was the ultimate cause of some of uh, some of the economic and political and social misfortunes. It was both symptomatic of larger Dutch decline, but also fed back into it. And then a few months later, and this is where the timing comes in, shipworms also perceived to be unnatural, also seeming to come out of nowhere, are discovered on the island of Valkyrie in Zeeland. And so, once again, this small group of moralizers it's becoming less small at this point, begin to uh, causally connect the two, that one of the responses to the perceived um, decay of Dutch morality is the arrival of disasters, where here we have shipworms, and they liken the character of shipworms um, to, the, uh, to the discovery of this sodomitical network, right? So uh, in that specific way, timing was important, and also to a certain extent, the character, at least the, this is the early modern perception of them. Yeah, really fascinating. Um, so you bring us back to uh, to the cattle plague, which emerges again in the mid-18th century. Um, how was it different than the first time? And what um, how did the earlier like how did the earlier cattle plague, you know, prove useful into addressing it the second time or was it useful? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so cattle plague returns to the, the Netherlands, to the Republic in 1744, and you're right, it's very different. It lasts over twice as long. It almost lasts 20 years, though once again, like the first waves are without question the most deadly. But because it lasts so long, I mean, it kills hundreds of thousands uh, more cattle than the first. And I mean, records from the early uh epidemic or epizootic are scarce. Um, they're still pretty rare um, in the 1740s, but we have a slightly better picture of uh, what mortality might have been. They're imperfect, but estimates range for the first one to around like upwards of 300,000 cattle death. But in this panzootic, at least the epizootic in, in the Republic, it reaches probably a million. Uh, and this is without question the deadliest, in other words. Uh, far deadlier than the first, and actually it's deadlier than the third that will come in a few decades, but I don't cover that third one in the book. And there are a number of reasons why this is the case. They um, actually relate to disaster cascade. They relate to uh, some of this climate change that was implicated in the first. They relate to trade and warfare. Um, and that way they're, they're, they're pretty similar. I could talk about that more if you'd like, but... Um, in terms of did the previous experience of the plague prove useful, I argue that uh, absolutely it did. I mean, the, I mean, the first cattle plague was uh, pretty prominent in the cultural memory of uh, the recent past. Many people, I mean, had, could have conceivably lived and been alive during the first and they would have experienced the second. But even if they weren't, uh, I mean, they still were aware of what was going on. And there was also institutional memory, too. So... Some of the state level, like provincial, regional responses uh, to cattle plagues uh, were similar. You have, once again, um, like the, Im the import and export restrictions imposing them, uh, actually lowering trade 
tariffs on imported Danish cattle because you want to encourage restocking. Uh, and, you know, folk remedies haven't lost any of their appeal. Uh, the same like contagionism environment, this universalist approach is, you know, sort of alive and well, in other words. So it was useful, but there are also really, I argue, important differences. Um, and those differences were in part due, and this is our, also what I argue, it really extends the length of the cattle plague due to this ongoing disaster cascade, right? Which ultimately really begins, I think, in 1739, 40, this harsh winter. But there are also repeated river inundations that were killing cattle uh, in the 1740, know, 40, 41, and also 17, when, like, it would happen during the cattle plague too. There'd be multiple river floods as well. There was also inclement weather, weather that affected like hay production, grass growth. And so you have all these things that are killing cattle before the cattle plague even arrives in 1744. So part of the reason the cattle plague is introduced in the first place is because you have this pre-existing cascade that's necessitating the lowering of tariffs to encourage import of cattle from Denmark. You ban the export of hay, you ban the slaughter of calves, you want to encourage natural increase as well. All this is happening. There's already economic and social disruption. The cattle economy is suffering. And then the cattle plague arrives. And then uh, you have this attempt by all these provinces to try to manage... Um, manage the impact of the disease by imposing and then lifting import and export restrictions. Because if you impose import restrictions too long, then the cattle economy suffers. But if you don't do it enough, you're continually reintroducing plague. Like this is this notion that uh, Dominic Hunerger lays out in his, his book on the 1740s in Germany. He calls this continuous crisis management. And I think that's a really apt encapsulation of what the Dutch are going through. And this, it, in, in essence, it extends... Uh, the cattle plague much longer than the first. There are also, I mean, there are other like ecological reasons and climatic reasons why this was was pretty pop, uh, problematic. Um, and then one other really important way, it's really different, and that's that this period between like roughly 1744, like sitting over about a decade. Um, this is about the nadir of this, of like how bad things would get in this first half of the 18th century. Because on top of all these disasters, like natural disaster-related issues, harvest failures, etc., you have economic decline that's now impossible to ignore, right? You have recession in rural regions and like Western, especially like export-oriented industrial towns like Leiden and Harlem. I mean, their populations are precipitously declining. So it's becoming almost impossible to ignore that, especially in like the industrial West, uh, yeah, decline is now not just moral, but it's also self-evidently economic to a certain extent social. It's also maybe geopolitical because the French invade again, right? Now, once again, this process of like political destabilization, except this time it's not William III, he died in 1702, right? Now it's William IV who is like propelled into this position of political primacy in the context of these inter, you know, dependent social, natural, uh, economic changes and crises. You have like revolts um, against when they're called like tenant revolts that happen in the late 1740s. There's riots against tax collectors and 
mean, this is a pretty tumultuous time, in other words. And I mean, I go so, so far as to say that it sort of echoes uh, the Rampyar. It's not an existential crisis in quite the same way, but it's still a period of very widespread and complex interlinking crises. So yeah, the other, I guess, big difference, and this is what I focus a lot on at the end, is um, because this is lasting so long, um, and also because of the influence of the Dutch Enlightenment, I argue, you have a new emphasis on a novel medical technique, and that's inoculation. And inoculation, it's not vaccination, right? Inoculation is the little transfer of live virus material into a healthy body, which would hopefully provoke an immune response that isn't, you know deadly, life-threatening, and in, some, in the case of some disease, actually confer immunity. And so one of the things they had learned in the previous panzootic is that cattle that survived the disease um, would, in many cases, gain immunity to it. And so they thought, oh, this is just like this other disease, a human disease, where recently we've been experimenting with this interesting you know non-european technique called inoculation this is of course smallpox smallpox and some of the early uh, promotion of smallpox um in england and on the continent happened uh in a, like earlier in the century uh and of course like acceptance of smallpox inoculation takes a lot of time uh there's a lot of resistance and there would be a lot of resistance to inoculating cattle as well but regardless like in the mid by mid 1750s we're now into the you know, the second decade of this, um, the second decade of this panzoatic, the Dutch, or a few Dutch people begin experimenting uh, with inoculation in Holland. And it happens in this tiny little small town outside Harlem. It's called Beverwijk. They get one of the first, like, learned societies, this kind of enlightened institution to, you know, popularize it, to fund it. And actually, it's a failure. <laughs> Something like... Three of the 17 animals they inoculated actually ultimately survived. And yet they were not dissuaded by this. Like this Baver bike study, and there's there, there were probably there were a few other studies before. This was the like the most popular. It really popularizes. And you can think of this as sort of the continental staging ground for this very widespread, not just in the Netherlands, but also like Germany, especially some in France. Um trials for inoculation they're spreading across europe because this is of course not just the netherlands that's a, that's affected by cattle plague it's all these states and inoculation is, is like represents all like the best that the like the enlightenment has to offer it's this really optimistic rejoinder to this environmental problem can you control can you master nature uh i mean if in the enlightenment is what peter gay calls a recovery of nerve like Inoculation is this wonderful example of that. But, I mean, ultimately, it, I mean, it's not successful uh, in the 1740s or the, oh, in the 1750s or even the 1760s. They'll continue to experiment with this during the third uh, epidemic. But I think this is interesting for a few reasons. Uh, and the most important is because this, some like early enlightenment ideas uh, and imperatives are already on display much earlier, especially during the shipworm epidemic and the river floods, but they are on full display uh, by the time we get to this second panzoatic of cattle plague. And it's not just because we have like Enlightenment era institutions, like learned societies begin to take an active part. It's because the way of thinking about disasters is fundamentally changing. 
even on a providential level, right? Disasters aren't just this, you know, kind of linear sin punishment dynamic and like individuals or maybe communities are implicated. Um, and the, the goal is to create a second Israel. Now it's about the civic um, strength of the fatherland. I mean, providence as an idea is also fundamentally changing at this period of time. But like people are, disaster had always been seen as an opportunity for renewal. It's not like innovation is all that new. People had, had you know, emphasized this. Uh, in the earliest disasters of this century as well. But this becomes the overwhelming emphasis by the time we get to uh, we get to this second outbreak of, of cattle plague. Uh, and so at this point, I mean, decline is really the primary problematic of the Enlightenment in the, in the, like the moderate Dutch Enlightenment of the mid-18th century. And they're seeing finally now decline is not just something that's moral, but it's also environmental. It's also and social it's really pretty universal and it becomes much more the focus or much more of a focus of um uh of politics of science it's not just confined to a group of moralists from this point onwards but at this point yeah this is the final case study so i i finish up there <laughs> yeah i mean they're all really fascinating so after you look at you know, floods, worms, cattle plagues, uh, in this period of decline. Like, what are some of the the big conclusions that you take away from the from about the Dutch Republic and about disasters and and decline? Yeah, I uh, spend the last chapter really tackling both in turn because one goal of the book was to use disasters to explore this sort of broad trajectory of declensionist discourse over time, and um, you see that. You know, the gradual evolution of decline as a discourse from like 1672 all the way to the 1740s, like reaching uh, its I mean, conclusion with the, the second uh, cattle plague pandemic, this notion that you go from just uh, like a moral concern to something that affects virtually all. It's a totalizing event or it's a totalizing phenomenon. It affects all of Dutch society. Um, but there's also lessons, I think, uh, because one of the other goals of the book is to use this period of time of the early 18th century to explore what uh, what can we glean about disaster dynamics, not just in the 18th century, but maybe even potentially um, for the present. And I, I throughout the book, use a few um, sort of core themes drawn from kind of the intersection of environmental history and disaster studies to... Uh, aid in the analysis of each uh, case study, and those are disaster hybridity, uh, disasters as events and cumulative processes, and like disasters and scale, and then finally the use of the past. So the I guess the lessons, well, I guess beginning on like when I talk about disaster hybridity, what does that mean? Uh, I mean disaster hybridity simply just refers to the notion that disasters are not strictly natural and social events, they're sort of a combination of the two. And I argue that thinking about disasters as hybrid events encourages us to emphasize both. And um, I mean, other people may disagree, but especially in disaster studies, especially um, like the, the, the notion that disasters are the result of natural hazards and social vulnerabilities so often, especially increasingly, emphasis is placed on the social uh, and not necessarily to the exclusion of the natural, but I, I find that the environmental components of natural disasters have tended to be de-emphasized over time. And I think um, 
recognizing the hybridity of them, and environmental historians, I argue, are pretty well positioned to do this, uh, is, uh, I think, a more effective way. Uh, it sort of counteracts this tem- tendency to like denaturalize natural disasters. Uh, but I also say that like hybridity encourages us to think about disaster uh, more broadly as really multi-dimensional phenomena. Uh, we need to think about disasters not just as impacting infrastructure or social networks or economic relations like the material components. We also need to think about them as cultural phenomena. And some of the links, I argue, that connect disasters to one another, crises to one another, are also cultural, right? The way they're, the, they're revealed in patterns of language, they're revealed in myth and folklore, they're revealed in art and imagery, right? Uh, and if causal stories, which I spend a lot of time on in this book, uh, are not just limited to environmental change and social vulnerability, or even just like a combination of the two, because even hybridity is a causal story, we ignore the role that cultural values and imperatives and symbols, imagery, all these things play. And not just how we think about them, but how we respond to them, how we react to them, right? So hybridity is powerful, but it would be even more powerful, I argue, if we consider how disaster narratives are, and in the case of the 18th century, that narrative was decline or often yoked to these seemingly disconnected, like disconnected concerns. Decline was this really prominent meta narrative, so to speak. Uh, and so I wonder, this is sort of where I leave off in the book, like what would a 21st century equivalent of this kind of meta narrative, this, this cultural value or concern, um, what would this look like? And if we think about this, like disaster complexity in, in this in this way, I argue that we open ourselves up to many different ways we can mitigate disasters if we think about them as connected to a lot of the other cultural values and con- values and concerns that we don't usually treat uh, in the same discussion as disasters. Um, I think another lesson relates to disasters as events and processes. And like I said, I'm not the first person to argue this. This is based on a lot of fantastic work. And I've been drawing uh, to a great extent on the work of Greg Bankoff, who writes really powerfully on the connection between these things. Um, I argue that some balance of thinking of disasters as sort of isolated events, but also as the result of and part of long-term processes is necessary. And for all these lessons, I'm like thinking about how the Dutch perceive perceive the some version of this notion. And of course, like they would never have used the term disaster cascade. They wouldn't have thought of disaster as events processes, but they still perceived them in broadly in these ways. Because in most disaster literature, they were focusing on events, but they were rarely explained in isolation. Like floods were judged against previous water levels and cattle plagues were compared, etc already thinking in this hybrid event process way and those processes weren't like limited to the formation of social vulnerability for instance which we, we tend to focus on today it's important right but they were interested in other things like moral decay the loss of geopolitical primacy economic vitality the most common way they explored processes was by connecting these disasters together in these chains of causation uh, that I call a social cascade, and I shouldn't say I call because it's uh, this disaster studies, this disaster scholar named Susan Cutter actually, I think, coined the term, which hasn't, to my knowledge, actually been, um, like she posed the term, uh, and I'm 
uh, arguing that part of what we see in the 18th century is not just a disaster cascade, it's a social cascade, which like, broadly speaking is when disaster cascades aren't just working through infrastructure or social networks, but they're not just like limited to the loss of lives and livelihoods. They actually track the influence of calamities on the social fabric of daily existence, on changing worldviews and values. So I mean, broadly what we're looking at here is a social cascade. So this expansion of the idea of cascades is something I'd very much like to see more of in disaster scholarship. And especially from historians, I think, and I think environmental historians are really maybe in the best position to do this because they're already, I mean, they're, they're doing it somewhat. They're already interested in natural disasters, both like from a hybrid perspective, but also because disaster studies, especially disaster cascade scholarship, is still uh, pretty wedded to like capturing these dynamics and models. And it seems like social cascades require maybe a more narrative approach. Uh, and because so much of what social cascades are are just perfectly in keeping with humanistic investigation, the role of values and storytelling, you know, myths, language, etc. So. Yeah, that's another lesson, I think. Uh, yeah, more attention to cascades. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some would be like a really yeah interesting way to look at yeah not just or disasters, but how societies react to them over time and in periods of yeah national or international decline, relative decline. Yeah, um, so. It was, for our last question, I'm going to ask you our traditional last question here at New Books Network, and that is, uh, what are you working on next or now? Um, so I guess this is the New Books Network, so I should talk about books. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can um, talk about your digital history project if that's uh, relevant. Uh, well, okay. So the the book project is very long term. Like I'm thinking of this as something that's going to last several years. Um, and I haven't completely abandoned all aspects of what I'm focused. I mean, the Dutch Republic uh, and Dutch perspectives on disaster is going to be a part of this book too. Um, but disaster, a very specific type of disaster, and that's uh, the introduction of marine and aquatic species introductions. I mean, these, these things aren't necessarily one and the same. I and mean, what I'm thinking about is, uh, and what I'm working towards is, a, in essence, a global environmental history of introduced marine and aquatic species introductions, specifically in periods when the, these introductions are perceived as a form of crisis. Uh, and it's pretty ambitious, which is why it's, it's not something that I, you know, I'm prepared to talk a ton about today. I'm actually focusing on the last chapters, which are 20th century. And I'm starting there because I know the least about the 20th century, but in a, I, I can say that um, it's going to focus on the technological and policy response to uh, a few different species introductions, specifically zebra mussels, eventually quagga mussels yeah, in the Great Lakes, and also the bloom of toxic algae, toxic dinoflagellates is what they're called, in Australia. So, you know, I guess stay tuned, but don't stay too tuned because this is going to be a long time probably had some like articles that come out before this book comes out on this subject. Um, I'm working on a digital history project right now in collaboration with the Joslin Art Museum and the Nebraska Indian Community College. This is very disconnected from this scholarship. Um, and just like brief overview, um, in the 1830s, there was this um, German nobleman named Maximilian von Wied. He does um, this 
expedition into the through the American Midwest and into the West really just goes from Boston, travels down the Ohio, uh, and then up the Missouri River all the way to what's today Montana. And his purpose is to document what he calls the natural face of North America. And what he's describing, and the purpose of this is because he wants to document uh, the environmental, but also the social features, and particularly of Native American communities. And so the original like handwritten journal, um, three volumes are in the Joslin Art Museum, really just up the road from Creighton. Uh, and he brought along with him this Swiss artist named Carl Bodmer, who just made these fantastic uh, drawings, but also watercolors uh, of all sorts of different phenomena, but in particular uh, crafted some of the um, most interesting uh portraits of Native American peoples, Native American lifestyles that we have today, especially for um, uh, along the Missouri River. And so we're working with Joslyn and also the Nebraska Indian Community College to digitize uh, and combine Maximilian von Bede's text, imagery. We're geolocating this on a, um, a georeference historical map. We're having students from um, NICC and also from Creighton do some of this encoding work. And so this is actually the project I'm focusing on actually right now and um, trying to find time to do both of these large projects simultaneously. They both sound really fascinating. Yeah. Um, So we've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you for uh, talking with us today. The book is um, Natural Disaster at the Closing of the Dutch Golden Age, Flood, Worms, and Cattle Plague. It's published by the Cambridge University Press, and I hope you go out and check it out. So thanks. Thank you.